standing for our, well, there we are. Please remain standing for our sermon text from Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Again, give your ear to God's gospel. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard, the voice, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and he shall bruise your heel. Sorry, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are. And to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and eat also of the tree of life and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again of the privilege of coming together as your people to hear your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless its hearing and its preaching, that you would reveal the hope that you have for us in Christ through it. In his name we pray, amen. Please be seated. If you have Bibles, you can go ahead and open them to Genesis chapter 3. I read from 8 through the end of the chapter, 8 to 24. We're going to focus today specifically on verses 14 through 24. We're going to focus on God's speech to Adam and Eve and to the serpent. And I know there are are uh, some of us here that are new that are visiting, and um, for about once a month for the last couple months, that's uh, whenever, whenever I preach, we've been looking at Genesis 3 and considering some aspect of life that it illuminates. 
Uh, so we've been in Genesis 3 for a little while, and someone joked with me this week and said, man, you're always in Genesis 3 because you're such a pessimist and you want us to be, you know, you want us to be depressed, always talking about the fall of man. Um, that's, that's not really true, really. We keep coming back to this chapter because it's so foundational for understanding the Bible. Genesis, after all, is the book of beginnings. That's what the name means. And Genesis 3 is really the whole Bible in seed form. The rest of the scriptures are uh, what we've read about here in Genesis 3, taking uh, root and growing and blossoming. So the whole, to understand the Bible, you've got to understand what happens in the early chapters of Genesis. And, but the opening chapters of Genesis are, are more than just stories in the Bible. They're more than just legends. Genesis 3 is also foundational for understanding the world in which we live. Because Genesis 3 is not just a myth, it's not a myth, it's history. And everyone, everyone, whether you are a Christian or not, can see that the world is wonderful. It's absolutely marvelous. That's why we have documentaries like Planet Earth, where they explore, you know, like the grandeur of mountain ranges, and they look at the intricacies of, of the smallest tiny insects, and, and they have entire episodes dedicated to the beauty of the ocean. And everyone, whether you are a Christian or not, knows that something is terribly wrong with the world. That's why the most famous scene in Planet Earth is, is when the shark jumps out of the water and snatches up the little seal. You know, there's, there's death and there's chaos. But it's not just natural disasters, earthquakes, and so forth. Uh, we, we also wrong one another. We wrong other people. There's emotional suffering, psychological suffering. There's abiding, an abiding sense, whether you're a Christian or not, that there is something wrong with us, too. And our modern, western, secular culture has said uh, that that's simply the way that the world is. That uh, we, we don't need God to understand this. It's just time and chance acting on matter. And I think we can all intuitively understand just how unsatisfying that, that answer is. If the universe is really just time and matter and chance, why is it that we all have the sense that something is not um, just not optimal, but that something is wrong? There, that there's moral evil. If there's nothing outside of the material world, then there's really no basis for morality or purpose, no end. It's just the way that things are. There's no basis for saying that something is wrong with the world, and yet each of us intuitively knows that there is. No, you see, instead what the Bible teaches is that the problems in our world are caused by sin, which is greater than a moral problem. Even though it is a moral problem, sin is, is, results in our deep alienation from God. We live in a world that's not only broken, but Genesis tells us that we live in a world that is under God's cursed curse. But what makes that good news is that if sin is the problem in the world, then redemption is possible. 
if sin is the problem, then redemption is possible. Maybe not by us, maybe not by our, our own resources, but it's possible with God. I was talking with a young man um, last week who's not, who's not a Christian, not a believer, and he was telling me about the, the suffering that, he goes, that he's been through in his life. And, it, and he's been through some tremendous suffering, even at a very young age. He had significant strife and, and breakup in his family growing up. He, he had recently lost uh, two or three people who were very close to him, uh, friends. Um, and he was trying to figure out how to deal with the grief of that. He had all of the normal tensions and problems that you and I experience at work. And, and as we talked about, he began to tell me about the regrets that he had even at, at 19 years of age. He said that there were some things that he wished he could go back and make a different decision, and there were some things that he had done even that were still weighing on his conscience. It's the kind of, of, of sin, alienation, um, that we, all, that we all go through. If we were to go around the room today, I know that we would find many of the same things in every person's life, in yours and in mine, and perhaps you're even dealing with, with all of the same things that this young man was dealing with, like him. So it was a very real, it was an honest conversation. And, and as, as we talked, and he was explaining everything that was going on in his life, he said, he said, I just want to know why the world is the way that it is. I just, what's the reason? Why has my life been so hard? Do you know what he was looking for when he asked that question? He was looking for hope. He was looking for understanding and a sense of hope. And that's precisely what God gives in Genesis chapter 3. He, he comes and gives the gospel, which is hope for a broken world. Up to this point, we've learned that Adam and Eve uh, began their life in the garden with perfect fellowship with God and with one another. And yet when they, when they reached out and took the fruit, when they obeyed Satan and obeyed themselves rather than God, we, we talked about a, a few weeks ago that they began to experience guilt and fear and shame for the first time. And, and God has come searching for Adam and Eve to give them a message of judgment, yes, of discipline, but also a message of hope. And so, as we look at the chapter, I want to focus on verses 14 through the end. But the reason I started in chapter 8, or in verse 8, is because if you look at the chapter, it has this really nice, um, what, what, what's called a chiasm. It has a really nice uh, structure to it. Verse 8, God talks to the man. Uh, and then he talks to the woman, and then he talks to the serpent, and then he talks to the woman, and then he talks to the man. So if you could arrange it, um, if you could arrange it in a way that you could see, everything in the chapter would point to God's speech to the serpent there in 14 and 15. And so we're going to look at God's speech to the serpent at Adam and Eve, but we're going to take them in reverse order. We're going to look at his speech to Adam, his speech to Eve, and then the point of the chapter, his speech to the serpent. Okay, so first, God's, Adam, uh, God's speech to Adam. In verses 17 and 18, it says this. 
Then to Adam, he that is God said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. Um, It's important as we look at these two verses to start with, that the curse is not the origin of work. Work uh, was part of the original blessing, part of the original commission given to Adam and Eve. And in, in Genesis chapter 1, it says that God blessed them, saying, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And so work is not inherently a curse, but the curse that God pronounces here does now affect Adam and Eve's work of filling and subduing the earth. When God comes and talks to him, this means that they will still do and we will still do the work that we were created to do and God provides for our needs. But because of sin, work will become far more difficult, unpleasant, and liable to failure and unintended consequences. What the, the word there is that work will now have toil. And that word toil means pain or misery or hard labor. It's actually the, the same word that God, when God speaks to Eve, saying that there will be pain in childbirth. It's the exact same Hebrew word. Before this curse that God has uttered, work in, in related activities were always a pleasure and a joy and fruitful. And this is something that we all we all experience whatever work you do, whether that's housework or in an office or a classroom or a construction site, we all experience this futility and toil in our labors. This is why the deadline always seems to shift mid-project. And it's why the machines break down and the, and the mower blades need sharpening. It's why as soon as you finish cleaning one end of the house, you realize that the other end of the house is dirty. All right, this, this is exactly why as soon as you finish washing that very last dish, someone comes and puts another one right on the counter and, and leaves. There's a, there's a certain amount of futility and toil built in to the work that we do in the world. I think this is often why uh, young people in our culture, especially today, tend to jump from job to job to job uh, in rapid succession quickly. You can see this in a lot of uh, folks in their 20s that uh, they'll, they'll take job after job after job. And, and I often think the reason is, is because when you get into work out into the world, this becomes operative in your life. And you realize there's toil. This, this isn't as fulfilling as I thought. This doesn't make as much money as I thought. This doesn't have the same um, time commitments as I thought. I, I can't seem to make the progress that I thought I was going to. And you get the sense that, well, well, the problem is the job that I'm doing. And if I just, I'll switch jobs or I'll retool and I'll move on to something else. And they do and they find there's toil in that work too. That this is actually also difficult and it's not as fruitful as I thought it was going to be. And, and the deadlines shift and the more blades need sharpening. And, and it takes a while sometimes to learn that what God has pronounced here is a function of all of our work, all of our jobs, all of our lives. 
So if, if that's you, if you're, if you're sitting in your job and, and you're thinking, if only I could move, then it would be easy. If only I could move, then everything would be fine. I, I want to tell you that what the Bible teaches is that all work will have toil and hardship. It doesn't mean that there are not good reasons to shift jobs, to make a move, to do that kind of thing. But when you do, you need to have the understanding um, that this, this aspect of living in the world under a curse will be wherever you go. And even more, God tells Adam that as he tills the soil, in verse 19, he tells him that one day he would die and return to the soil from which he had come. He said, you will toil in your labor until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. That's another aspect of our fallen creation that we all deal with is death, physical death. Nearly everyone in this, in this room has lost someone that they loved. And if you haven't, then you will. But death is more than just the cessation of biological life. It's more than our bodies breaking down and returning to the dust from which we were taking. Death ultimately is a separation from the blessing and favor and presence of God. Human beings, human beings were not made to live simply like animals. Adam and Eve and you and I and every human being since then were all made in God's image and made for fellowship and communion with Him. That's what we found at the very end of Genesis 2 was that Adam and Eve were in perfect fellowship with God and with one another. And so really the climax of God's judgment to Adam is not only that he will die and return to the dust from which he was taken, but really it climaxes in, in verse 23, where it says that therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed the cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The climax of the judgment against Adam and Eve is that they're banished from the presence of God. This is the worst punishment of all. Alienation from God. The, the cherubim are set up to guard the way back to God and the tree of life and to keep man and woman out. That word there, sent out, uh, is a much stronger term than we can, we can capture in English. A lot, of, a lot of other translations will have it rendered drive out. And so he drove out the man. It's the word that the Bible uses when the Canaanites are expelled from the promised land or when disobedient Israel is cast out of the promised land and into exile. This is what the Bible teaches is our real problem. Alienation from God. The toil and, and frustration in our work, the unruly creation, and yes, even the physical death that we all will experience is to remind us that we are living in exile from God in this world. That's, that's what the young man that I was talking to really bothered him, was that sense of, of a guilty conscience that I am alienated from God. This is the climax of the judgment against Adam and Eve. Speaking of Eve, 
Let's look at God's speech to her. Whereas Adam's uh, judgment related primarily to the couple's task of subduing the earth, Eve's relates primarily to the task that they shared of filling the earth. Because of the entrance of sin, there will be pain and toil also in family life. Look at verse 16, it says this. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Here again, we, we need to be careful, especially because of, of modern views of, of marriage and family. Uh, marriage, family, the raising of children, the Scriptures teach, is a blessing. It's a good work. Uh, but God is clear here that there is pain and toil also. God tells Eve that she will experience great pain in becoming a mother, as every mother in here can attest. Um, we recently had our, our youngest child, Andrew, and we had to go into the hospital, um, and, and Rachel was in, induced into labor, and when we got in, we got everything set up. It was around 2 in the morning, and they got everything ready, and they said, y'all might want to um, take a nap and, and rest up for, for the day that's coming because there will be, there'll be labor. And so um, Rachel was in the bed, and I got into the chair and closed my eyes and, and tried to take a nap. And then five minutes into it, uh, the screams began from down the hall. Right? And immediately coming into my mind was, greatly I will multiply your, chain, <laughs> your pain in, in childbearing. Right? We all know that there's pain in childbearing. But there's more to that than what God is saying in the physical pain of childbirth. The strife that sin causes among uh, children and families is also another grief. See, there's not just weeds growing out in the world, but there's also sinful weeds and sinful proclivities growing in our heart. And this introduces pain into family relationships. And whereas Eve would have been fulfilled in a ruling partnership now with her husband, she will desire to rule over her husband. And that's, that's what the word, your desire shall be for your husband, means. It's a very rare word. It only occurs two other times in the Hebrew Bible. But the next one is when um, God speaks to Cain and he says that sin's desire, sin desires you, but you must rule over it. It's, it's almost an exact same construction. Sin desires master, to have mastery over Cain, but he exhorts Cain instead to rule his sin. And instead, she now experiences that he will rule over you, which is an, another word used throughout the Bible for not just uh, rule like a king, but to dominate, to tyrannize. And so God is saying that there will be um, strife in familial relationships and there will be strife in marriage relationships. Pain in becoming a mother in anguish, and a struggle for dominance in marriage. Um, friends, I want you to notice, though, that even in God's judgment, there are glimmers of mercy and hope. The toil and the frustration that God introduces, that sin has introduced into the world, serves to curb the evil that now resides in each of us. 
Look at verse 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. He puts them out of the garden. And this means that no matter how great the evil or the frustration, uh, the frustrations that we face uh, will come to an end. That the, the most evil person that you can think of will one day die and return to the dust. And, and their evil plans will die with them. I mean, that Adam and Eve are going to experience uh, trouble in their family and trouble in their vocation out in the world actually prevents the world from being as bad as it could as quickly as it could. But even more than that, the pain that God puts in our lives reminds us of our sin and our need to seek Him. Isn't that how, often how it works in, in your own life or in the lives of people that you know when there's some pain or sin or weakness that gets your attention, that it redirects you back to God? Often when things are going well, people feel like they have no need of God. But then... Uh, when there is a disease, when there is a family problem, when there is uh, some struggle that they cannot overcome in and of themselves, and they, they, they say, I, I need to return to God. I need God's help. It was the suffering in this young man in my neighbor's life that made him open to hearing about the things of God. That's, that's what sparked our conversation. I have all of these different problems in my life, and I know it's, it's telling me that I need God. That's why we looked at Genesis chapter 3. Because it's what opens him, it's what opens us to the gospel, God's word of hope, which we find in his speech to the serpent in verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Whereas the serpent, whereas Satan began the, chap the chapter more crafty, more intelligent than every Beast of the field, in verse 1, he ends the chapter more cursed than every beast of the field. God pronounces doom and defeat upon him as he says that he will crawl on his belly and eat dust. Now, this is not, uh, this is not a story about how the serpent lost its legs and why snakes crawl. No, in the Bible, these are terms that mean utter defeat. For example, Isaiah prophesies of Israel's enemies saying this, With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Or Psalm 72 says this of the Messiah and those who oppose him, oppose him that they will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. God is pronouncing the utter defeat of Satan. And in verse 15, he tells us how that will happen. Instead of Satan and humanity being pitted against God, God says that he will draw the battle lines differently. He will put enmity between Satan and the woman and Satan's seed or children and her seed. Human history 
has always consisted of a long struggle between good and evil. But God says that someone, one of the children of the woman, will crush the serpent's head even as the serpent bruises his heel. God's word to Satan here is is called often the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, because this is the first announcement in the Bible of the coming Redeemer, and this is why children factor so heavily into the Bible storyline. It's why we always see the, uh, the, them trying to overcome barrenness and have children or, or the importance because we're looking for the one who would be born and crush the serpent's head and put everything right. Genesis traces this seed of the woman from Adam to Seth to Noah to Abraham to Isaac and Jacob and Judah. And then the rest of the Bible will follow the trail on to David and finally to Jesus Christ. Jesus is this promised seed of the woman. He is another Adam who was tempted by Satan. But Jesus, unlike Adam and Eve, was not tempted in a paradise garden. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness after, Matthew tells us, that he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was hungry. It's that wonderful biblical understatement. Right? And afterward, he was hungry. When Jesus was starving, that's when Satan came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus resisted his temptations. Satan tempted Jesus a second time, and a third time he offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus could become the king of the world, the king of the universe. Jesus could become like God, the very thing that Satan offered to Adam and Eve. But Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Matthew 4, 2 through 10. See, unlike Adam, Jesus withstood his temptations, but Satan still had the poisonous bite that we read prophesied about. At his instigation, the people killed Jesus. And it looked like utter defeat for the seed of the woman. The promised seed of the woman that we have waited for for thousands of years died. But when he died, an amazing thing happened. Matthew tells us that as he breathed his last, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This curtain in the temple is what barred people from the presence of God. And do you know what was embroidered on this curtain that kept people from God's presence? The cherubim. The cherubim, that reminder that sinful people cannot come into a holy God's presence. But when Jesus died, this curtain was torn in two, and we were no longer blocked from the presence of God. That sense of alienation, that sense of guilt, that sense of condemnation that we carry Jesus dealt with in his death on the cross for your sins in your place. And you can know because the temple curtain was torn in two and access to God was granted back to everyone. Satan's victory turned into defeat. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And from there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. The book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, tells us that the first one, in fact, to be judged will be Satan. The devil who had deceived them, it says, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, Revelation 20, 20. And this is the vision that John sees in the book of Revelation. 
He says this, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him forever. Revelation 22, 1 through 3. Not only did Jesus defeat Satan and the cross and deal with our sin and our alienation from God, but he will raise us from the dead and bring us back into full and complete fellowship with God. That's the vision that the Bible ends with. That's the message of Genesis 14 and 15. Paradise restored. Hope for a broken world. Just like we sing every Christmas. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. That's where we're headed. Everyone who believes in Jesus and is united to him by faith. This is the message in Genesis 3. It is the message of the Bible. And the hope that Jesus gives us is not only for the future. The message is not simply hunker down and wait until he makes all things new. But the effects of it begin now in the lives of those who have entrusted themselves to him. As we live lives of repentance and faith united to Christ, the effects of the curse begin to unroll. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian Christians to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. In the Lord, your labor is not ultimately fruitless, but God will reward every good work. In Ephesians 5, we're told that children really can obey their parents in the Lord and that husbands can love their wives as Christ loved the church, and wives can submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we walk in repentance and faith, the curse begins to unroll in our lives. And while we still grieve death, we do not grieve, Paul tells us, as those without hope. Because Jesus rose from the dead. Ultimately, the resurrection of Jesus is a promise of our own bodily resurrection in that new world that John saw. In Romans 8, Paul tells us this, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, that is, for our resurrection from the dead. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption and the glorious liberty of the children of God. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies, for we were saved in this hope. Amen. That means that if you believe in Jesus, and you're united to him by faith, what you need to get used to is the tension that theologians will often call the already and the not yet. Right? 
We are looking forward to that new heavens and that new earth in which righteousness dwells, that God has remade all things, the redemption of our sinful, edemic bodies on the last day. And yet, even now, by faith, the power of the Holy Spirit can begin to work this in your life, not in a complete way, but in a true way. So that strife in your family through forgiveness and the application of the blood of Christ can begin to melt away so that you can work in hope, knowing that the work that you do in the Lord is not in vain. So that you can know that one day, even with the aches and the pains and the frailties that you feel in your body, that God will raise you from the dead just as surely as Jesus got up from the dead. And if you're here in this room and you, and you don't believe in Jesus Christ, if you, if you have not placed your faith in him, if you're not united to him by faith, you need to know that this is the hope of the world. There is no hope outside of Jesus. You are far more than time and matter and chance. There are no satisfying resources for the problems that we face in life outside of Jesus. But in Jesus, we have hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent your son, the seed of the woman, to crush the head of the serpent, to free us from our sin and our alienation from you. Lord, and we pray that you would give us grace to live lives of repentant faith, believing in him and looking forward to the resurrection of the dead. In Jesus' name, amen.